So also, I want to wish you a happy uh, drive-in movie day, National Drive-In Movie Day. Um, so you can go to, is, is Pride's Corner still open? Anyone know? Anyways, you can go to the drive-in movie. So um, Seth, to make everybody feel at home and get the spirit of this, if you could make my voice really tinny and coming out of a, like it's coming out of a small box in the window of your car, then that would set the mood. All right, so by way of introduction to my sermon and introducing myself, um, I am a planner. I like to make plans. If you know anything about the Enneagram, I am a seven on the Enneagram. If you don't know anything about the Enneagram, don't worry about it. Six, yes, Joel. <laughs> oh, six, yes, I am definitely not a seven. You're right, I got the wrong number. My wife is a seven, which balances me out well. I am a six, so I'm not just a planner, I'm a worst case scenario planner. It means I'm planning for everything horrible that could and will go wrong. But I want to recount some of my plans for you here this morning. Plan, I will meet my wife in college and get married shortly after graduation. So I did go to college at 18 like a normal person. I married my wife, Christy, when I was 30. I did not spend 12 years in college. Plan, I will stay in the Midwest, close to my family, all my life. I think we can answer that by the fact that I'm, uh, I'm standing here and I've been in Maine for 14 years now. Plan, <laughs> after Erica, we were done having children to the point where we took necessary precautions to not have any more children. Result, an infant we were supposed to ha care for for three months is now our son, and you've seen him and I'm sure heard him wandering around here. So you can see, God and I are simpatico all the way through my life. Obviously not. Um, if you know, I don't know how many know that Isaac's, or Isaac's, Micah's middle name is Isaac, uh, which means laughter. And so we named him that both because he has a great laugh and because we're pretty sure when we said we were done having kids, God laughed at us. But he had other plans. And the book of Acts is about God's plan. It's about God's plan for uh, taking the gospel um, from Jerusalem and spreading it out uh, in the wake of Christ's death and resurrection and in the founding of the early church, bringing it out through the world and the beginning of the fulfillment of the Great Commission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And today we're going to look at a passage, and it's really about God continuing this work, but he does it through, I think, some well-intentioned plans that actually go awry. And the thought I want you to take away today is this. God's plans are higher than our plans. They prevail over our plans. And they are the plans of a God whose love for you and his church are, so ste are steadfast to the point of sacrificing his only begotten son. So the setting today. Um, so in the book of Acts, we are at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He has returned from Miletus and has come back to Jerusalem. And th that's the end of the missionary journeys recounted in the books of Acts. Um, some scholars say there's actually a fourth missionary journey that happens after the book of Acts, uh, but that's not recounted here. And Paul comes back to Jerusalem despite some warnings. Uh, and in Acts uh, 20, 22 to 23, in Paul's own words, he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. In Acts 21, 4, there's a warning from the disciples, and it says, Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And in Acts 21, 10 through 14, Agabus the prophet and the Ephesian elders kind of warn Paul. Agabus the prophet actually binds his own hands with Paul's belt and said, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
And when the elders heard this, they pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, they gave it up and said, the Lord's will be done. So now we come to our passage today. We're in Acts 21, and I'm going to start with uh, verses 17 through 26. And when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. And they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in the purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. That everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So here Paul visits, visits the elders of Jerusalem and James. And James uh, is Jesus' half-brother. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he comes and he reports uh, the great things that God has been doing amongst the Gentiles, and they, they rejoice and glorify God. But then they, they bring up a problem, and the problem is this. There are a lot of Jewish converts to Christianity uh, who are zealous for the law. In other words, they're holding tightly to, to the traditions of the Jewish faith. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, and I feel like it's a whole other sermon we could preach on traditions and the roles of tradition in the church, but that's not where we're going today. Um, these are people who maybe these traditions are still meaningful, despite the fact that they've acknowledged the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of the scriptures. But these things are meaningful to them. These customs point them back to God and are a good thing. But then they've heard and been told that Paul teaches against these practices, which they hold dear. And so they've been listening to rumors from someone else, because Paul has not, in fact, preached against this. And they, perhaps maybe from some of the Judaizers who are saying, uh, if you remember back in chapter 15 in the Council of Jerusalem, that, they ha that Gentile converts have to also follow the law of Moses. And you'll remember in Acts 15, Paul taught against these practices being a salvation issue. He did not necessarily preach against them having no value, or preach them having no value and no merit. In fact, in verse 25 down below, there's a quote from the Council of Jerusalem that they shall abstain from food sacrificed idols, from blood, from strangled animals, and from sexual immorality, which comes from the Council of Jerusalem to the Gentile believers saying, these are the things you have to do. The rest of it's okay. And I think this is quoted here to show this is not a reversal of the position from the Jerusalem Council. This, in fact, affirms the letter that they sent uh, to the church at Antioch at the time and has been read throughout the churches. So they come up with a solution, though, to get, quell the rumors that Paul is preaching against the law. So Paul is to take four men who are under a vow, go to the temple, purify himself with them, and pay their expenses so they can shave their heads seems kind of odd, but to put so that, that 
in context, these men had most likely taken what's called the Nazarite vow. And this is fully described in Numbers 6, 1 through 21. But briefly, men or women in the Jewish tradition could set themselves apart to the Lord for a certain period of time. During this time, they could have no strong drink. They could have nothing produced from the grapevine, so they couldn't drink wine, in other words. They could not cut their hair, and they could not be around dead bodies. There's a whole bunch of stuff about dead bodies in that passage. And at the end of this period, they had to bring an offering. And it was a big offering. They had to bring a male lamb, one year old, without blemish, a ewe lamb, one year old, without blemish, a ram, without blemish, a basket of unleavened bread, unleavened wafers, a drink offering. So this is what they've asked Paul to cover for all these people. That's, A, that's really pretty expensive. And then at the end of this vow, to show that they're done, they take this offering and then they shave their heads. And they actually would put the hair under the, on the fire of the altar under the offerings to be burnt, which if you've ever smelled burning hair, it smells terrible. So Paul goes along with this. He sets the date for his own purification. Now this is actually um, necessary for Paul to do too because he's been with the Gentiles. So to go into the temple, he actually has a seven-day period of purification he has to do too. And so he basically sets this up to coincide with the end of the Nazarite vow so he can go and be purified along with them. But we'll see in the next little part of this passage, this inadvertently sells, sets Paul up for a little bit of mild unpleasantness. So we're going to pick up again at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the seven days of Paul's purification, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is a man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple as defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So here we see the Jews from Asia who are um, definitely opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they might po possibly be from Ephesus, it's not really known, but they did recognize Trophimus, at least as being an Ephesian, if not knowing him by name. And they bring some false accusations against Paul. That they're teaching, he's teaching everyone everywhere against the law in this place. And if you know anything about rhetoric or debate, that's just a terrible argument because it's a way overgeneralization. But they bring this accusation, and then they accuse him of bringing Greeks into the temple, um, which is also false. They just assume that he brought Trophimus into the temple with him just because they saw him out and about with him in Jerusalem. So it says the whole city was stirred up. They get the people worked up. We've seen this uh, also in the book of Acts in previous places. But the mob drags Paul out of the temple intending to kill him. And how do I know they're intending to kill him? Because the next verse says, and as they were seeking to kill him. So sometimes you have to do some subtle reading to suss these things out. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now the cohort was basically the Roman garrison that was there to keep law and order. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they had saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, arrest the guy being beaten, okay, and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, 
Beth, is Paul. He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence in the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So what begins as an arrest for stirring up a mob actually ends up with the soldiers arresting Paul almost for his own safety and carrying him into the barracks so this crowd is not going to kill him. But either way, Paul has been arrested. Not exactly what James and the elders had planned. So what can we take away from this passage? So James and the elders had a problem, so naturally, they came up with a plan to address this problem. But instead of assuaging the fears of the Jewish believers like they had intended, they actually ended up providing an opportunity for Paul to be arrested by those who opposed the gospel message. And in, in the end, their plan had a very unintended consequence in Paul's arrest. And I think we can identify that, can't we? I mean, so often we make plans, we sort things out, and we're sure something is going to work. But where do they work? Where do they end up? How do they turn out? For my examples, I didn't meet my wife in college, obviously. I didn't stay in the Midwest, obviously. And obviously, I wasn't done after two kids. And fill in your own plan. Surely you can think somewhere in your life where you've set a plan, you've put it into motion, and you've ended up maybe somewhere entirely different. Maybe it was a good thing, maybe it was unpleasant, maybe you still are waiting to see. But we do know that the book of Psalms says this, our God is in heaven, and he does all that he pleases. Not what you please, what he pleases. And the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 55, and, and we sang this this morning, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So Paul's been arrested. But guess what? Though not part of the elders' plan, it is part of God's plans, because his ways are higher. And I'm going to take a little peek further on in the books of Acts here, and hopefully not steal anyone's thunder from the coming weeks, but if you flip ahead, Acts 23.11, it says, and this is after Paul has been questioned by the, the um, Jewish councils, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So God had a plan, and it's the plan we've seen being worked out in the book of Acts so far, for the gospel to be taken from Jerusalem and carried forward. And so it just so happens that Paul's arrest here is going to end up in him going to Rome just like God intends. Certainly, maybe not the best way. I'm sure Paul would have said, you know, that's okay, Lord, I'll walk. But that's not how it happened. But now Paul, being imprisoned, as we'll see in the coming chapters, he has the opportunity to speak the gospel to the powerful of the day. Same with me. God had a plan, despite my best efforts. I married Christy. She's awesome. She's a seven, which balances out my six, and the fact that she's much more relaxed compared to my neurotic ball of stress. <laughs> Here in Maine, I've experienced some of the most profound Christian community in my entire life, being part of this body. Micah, I love Micah. <laughs> he will, I'm sure when I look back at my uh, life, have played a large part in my sanctification. And now this church. So this church, when we look around the root cellar, this might not be where we expected to end up. Because uh, I can tell you, the elders, the leadership team, we had a plan. Um, you may remember Robbie Miller 
uh, shortly after COVID happened, I think, he, was, he gave a plan for angels gradual, uh, angels gradual transition away from being the head pastor of our church and pursuing a career as a counselor. We have plans to beef up our community groups, our triad, Women's Connect. We had hired Joel as an executive pastor, and thankfully Joel's still our executive pastor. But, you know, we were excited. We had momentum. We had big plans. Then what happens? Well, there was a global pandemic, and this global pandemic challenged our very ability to get together and function as a community. It's the very heart of what we are. Angel was faced with the opportunity of a lifetime, and although he was sent off with the blessing of the elders, it was still an unplanned sudden departure. It wasn't what we had initially planned and laid out. During this pandemic, um, we've seen the departure of several families from our congregation for good and bad reasons. And so we look around, and we're not necessarily the church we were before all this happened. And we can wonder, it's easy to question, what are you doing, Lord? Who are we? Why are we here? And what's happening? Now, these things, unfortunately, I can't tick off the responses like I did for my own um, very contrived examples from my own life that I put in the sermon. Because I don't know we're far enough on the other side. You know, we just don't have that clarity. We're a little bit in the fog. But as we walk through the fog and try to determine what we are, where we are as Missio Day Church, we can rest in some things. We can rest that God's ways are higher than our ways, and they are being accomplished. Psalm 117.2 says, For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And sadly, the one I want to put out there, it's almost become cliche. I almost hate to read it because it's like that worship song you've just heard a little bit too much. But put that aside and just like focus anew on John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And right now, God is in the heavens. He is doing as he pleases. But this person up in the heavens, not person, this God who is up in the heavens, doing as he pleases, is a God whose ways are higher than our ways. He is a God who has great and steadfast love for us. He is a God who has steadfast love for us to the point of sacrificing his only son to redeem us and to redeem his church. And we can take confidence that that is a God we want in heaven, doing as he pleases. Let's pray. Father, we do just stand in awe of your plans, your ways, um, the way that you sovereignly work out your plan of salvation, your plan of rescue for your creation, your plan for bringing all things back under you through your son, Jesus Christ. We just pray as we move to communion that that would be a reminder of the price that was paid to bring all this back to you, but also a sign of just the great, tremendous love that it took and the sacrifice that you made to pursue your bride, um, to bring your church back to you. We pray this in your name, Son, Jesus Christ. ourselves with Christ and find forgiveness, the sign and seal of which we are about to do 
we can trust in his future and further plans for us. In Jeremiah 29.11, God tells us, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Rest in the knowledge that the God of all creation has set his love upon you, and he has called you to be his own, and that he sent his son to live the life that we couldn't live and to pay the price that we couldn't pay. As you wrestle with these packages, I encourage you to partake uh, as I read the next passage from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we rest our hopes upon you. Thank you for your son's sacrifice that has won us freedom and adoption as sons and daughters. Amen.